truly. I'm very blessed to have the roommates. They're essentially my movie uh, slaves. They don't get much <laughs> say. Welcome, everyone, to A Century in Cinema. I'm Arthur. And I'm Andrew. And this is a podcast where we discuss a classic film from every year. Today's film is from 1942. To Be or Not to Be, directed by Ernst Lubitsch. And that is available online. You can always find where it is streaming in our show notes. I myself watched it on HBO Max. Good quality transfer. Everything seemed great. And yet again, there was a physical Blu-ray of this in my house. So Very good. <laughs> you have the Criterion release? Oh, yeah. I, you know I spare no expense. <laughs> <laughs> so this is coming out in 1942, the middle of World War II. And America has joined the war effort. The Allies are pushing back Italy and Nazi Germany and Northern Africa. America's attempts to retake islands in the Pacific doesn't go well for the first half of the year, but after the Battle of Midway, they start to push back against the Imperial Japanese forces. Meanwhile, on the Eastern Front, Germany is pushing into the Soviet Union. Uh, the Red Army is not doing so well, and it isn't until early 1943, the Battle of Stalingrad, that Germany eventually breaks and the Soviet Union is able to push back against them. Always forget about the Eastern Front. We're very focused on our Western world, but many, many people die and there's there's huge, huge battles that take place on the Eastern Front in Russia during this time. Following the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, the FDR administration and their executive order puts 120,000 people of Japanese descent do internment camps in the United States. Mm. Popular culture this year, basically everything turns to the war. You have Casablanca, right? Terrific film. Yankee Doodle Dandy. I haven't seen that in a long time. Road to Morocco. I've never seen that. Nada. And Bambi, the infamous propaganda film. I would call it propaganda. <laughs> How long has it been that you've seen Bambi? I wouldn't call it World War II propaganda. It's environmentalist propaganda. Um, but I, I, yeah, I just I see a lot of Hollywood films and films in general turning towards the war effort. And if you're living in this time, I imagine you're feeling very stressed reading the news and wondering exactly how things are going to turn out. Yeah, I'm stressed just hearing the history lesson. I tried to put myself in the shoes of someone watching this film, to be or not to be, at the time. Funnily enough, in production before America was a part of the war and then released at a very precarious time. So I'm going to give the plot of this one. So it's a big plot. It's a big plot. So we have our two main characters, Joseph Tura and Maria Tura. They are very famous Polish actors of the stage. Maria is mildly questionably unfaithful to her husband. Yeah. And has a secret code with one of the men in the audience member 
that whenever her husband starts his to be or not to be monologue, that soldier can come back and see her in the dressing room because they will have enough time since the husband will be playing Hamlet for the the duration of that monologue. Cut to World War II begins. Warsaw is attacked. And a huge spy espionage plot goes down. I'm not going to get marred with details of it. No, you should not be. Essentially, the three members of that love triangle are forced to work together to try and stop the Gestapo from stopping the... They call it the underground in the film, so that's what we'll refer to it as. It's essentially a resistance movement within Poland. Hijinks ensue, and jokes are made, (laughs) and through a very complicated comedy of errors, which is not difficult to follow, but very difficult to describe in a podcast as if to somebody who hasn't seen the film. Um, Our heroes come out okay. The war continues, but this small defeat is seen as a as an optimistic view of how the war could turn out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that's one of the reasons I wanted to take the plot is I was I don't know I just there you could get literally lost in this description. I was just reading the Wikipedia summary of the plot afterwards to like make sure I got everything. <laughs> so long just to have to describe <laughs> who's impersonating who and why they yes. pulled off this person's beard and when and you might as well yeah you might as well just revisit the film <laughs> i mean it's it's shakespearean the level of comedy and complications in this comedy of errors oh yeah because shakespeare always has people like impersonating other people and if you haven't seen the film a lot of this podcast isn't going to make sense <laughs> i hope you enjoy it anyways um, so you recommended this film for one of our World War II films. It is obviously relevant to world events. You said you like this film. You said. I love this film. Okay. Uh, this is probably my favorite Lubitsch that I've seen. And I also find the cast so magnetic in this film. And those are qualities that are in the other films I've seen of his as well. I just feel this film personally refines it to something that is undeniably an art form and it pushes buttons in a way that I think is very risky and could so easily have not gone the right way. And as we will discuss later, kind of didn't go the right way. But now it truly is regarded as a classic. And anyone who watches this film with today's perspective is able to realize this script, this film was so far ahead of its time as far as its perspective on the war in the same way that another one of our favorite movies that we've discussed already, The Great Dictator, is. And that's what I love about it is that it's the same level of sharpness as the great dictator, but instead of being a ridiculous one man show kind of comedy, it's an ensemble cast farce. And I really like that both of those films exist and that they are both so successfully funny. And yeah, I think they're a phenomenal double feature. Do you think that you gravitate towards this film because of your history in theater? Oh, definitely. My first 
Ingmar Bergman film was Through a Glass Darkly. And so many people describe that one as one of his more impenetrable films. But the first time I watched it, when the family put on a little play outside, I thought, this is magical. If there is any sort of theatrical performance or implication that they are stage actors or anything like that in the plot, I am you've already kind of won me to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I, I kind of thought so as I was watching this. I'm like, I bet I bet Andrew likes this because of the, the theater perspective. It's a bunch of stage actors like saving the day. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, I tried to put myself into the mindset of someone watching this. I mean, coming off of our 1936 film, Things to Come, remember there's a bombing scene in that film pretty early on where London is destroyed. And there's a bombing scene in this film that sort of mirrors that. This film is actually being made and uh, during the destruction. That that's There's something very terrifying about that scene. And watching everything go down. I mean, as the Nazis march into Warsaw after it's been bombed and our main characters are weeping on on the streets and watching that, I was like, this is a comedy. I, I, I the the mood whiplash between like really harrowing, dark war drama and legitimately hilarious who's in what costume and who's impersonating who. Uh, I, I was, I was thrown off even today because both parts of the film are really well done. You know, they hit both of those emotional beats really well. The disturbing war scenes and the funny, uh, hijinks scenes. Absolutely. I'm going to give a shout out. Actually, my roommate, James, who I've been living with for a very long time, He was the one who got me into this film. He saw it first and told me that I was going to love it. He was right. And he showed it to me. I guess that was about five years ago now. Last night, when we watched it again, it was he and I plus our two other roommates. And that switch you were talking about, it hit so well. And I like this film because it's divided into sort of three sections. The opening sequence is pure ridicule to the point of it's almost offensive and it's so funny and then it's just sharp i mean it's so sudden it just goes right into a war drama which i think is super effective to an audience because you already know you're here for a comedy and you sort of get lulled into that it's going to be a sort of a simple elementary perspective on the war With that opening sequence, I mean, Carol Lombard coming out in this gorgeous dress and the joke about how that's what she's going to wear as a concentration camp victim. Oh, and you got to (laughs) remember, they did not know what was going on in the concentration camps. Yes. And it is my favorite joke in the film. I will have to state that because it's showing you that these characters, these people aren't fully aware of the situation otherwise they would be taking it more seriously and then we get that set up with the to be or not to be things already start to get a little dark because they say oh you can't perform the anti-nazi play you have to do hamlet again that's when the to be or not to be gag is introduced it's so clever how the film continues forward with a plot while also 
laying in the jokes and the setups in ways that you cannot possibly perceive on your first viewing. And it's all to get to some really major punchlines. But the movie makes you sort of work for it because that second section where we're in war-ridden Poland is very dark. And even when we're reunited with our comedic heroes for a moment, it turns into more of a spy espionage thriller for a solid chunk of the film. And then slowly but surely, really once her husband comes back in, realizes that the man who he's been suspicious of is in the room. And then he says to be or not to be. And it triggers him waking up, which is the first repeat of that joke. That's like the first joke in a very long time in the movie. And from that point forward, the movie very slowly sort of molds itself back into a comedy. And once it makes you comfortable with it, it goes full farce ham. And it is hysterical. I really love it because it builds a very trusting relationship with the audience. And it keeps all of its promises. And I I love that about this film. I don't think I loved it as much as you did. I still laughed quite a few times throughout it. But that mood whiplash was strange for me. And it's weird, too, because I feel like there are other dark World War II comedies about Nazis that I'm okay with. And that's, of course, not to say that the film is bad. It was just startling. Yeah, and it is interesting to compare this to The Great Dictator, because The Great Dictator really frames itself as full-blown comedy and then goes for the emotional swing at the end. And Great Dictator really wants the audience to leave feeling a little shaken. And I think To Be or Not To Be wants the audience to leave feeling a little bit lighter. And coming at different times in the war, too, Great Dictator comes right as the war is breaking out. So I do feel like there might have been a shock during production that this takes on a graver sort of tone. Whereas this is coming sort of more in the middle of the war. You know, America just got involved, but the war has been going on for a little while. And this takes on more of an era of just like straightforward propaganda at the end. You feel good. You want to like go win the war. We're going to get Hitler, et cetera, et cetera. It should be mentioned. I mean, even once it goes back into full farce mode, there's still an entire sequence of pure comedy where he's trapped in a room with a corpse all these legitimate details about how the Gestapo functions that are played for laughs, but also are realistic. So it's, it's a tightrope, but I think it, I think it walks it so well for me. I actually was thinking on this revisit, the, an easy film to compare it to of recent memory is Jojo rabbit. I was going to bring up Jojo rabbit. Yeah. Which I don't know how you feel about that movie. I do not like it at all. Oh, I love that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to state my case of comparison between the two. And you're, of course, free to respond. I feel the reason To Be or Not To Be succeeds where Jojo Rabbit fails is that Jojo Rabbit, at no point outside of a schmaltzy, sentimental preset moment that sort of anchors on the emotional attachment to a single character outside of that one sequence never lets the war be really serious. 
and never lets the reality of the situation be as dire as it truly is. For instance, when their home is visited by the Gestapo and they are all just bumbling idiots. Whereas in this film, we have one Gestapo member who is a bumbling idiot and that is played for laughs. But everybody else around him, including the main spy who they're trying to take down, is played completely straight faced. And I think that lends itself a lot more to the realism and lets the comedy shine more. Whereas with Jojo Rabbit, I mean, I won't lie. I I very rarely get offended by movies, truly. But mainly the scene where Rebel Wilson gets to make what seems to be an improv joke about strapping a suicide bomb to a child and sending him out into the war, that really pissed me off. So that's sort of where I am with it, is that I feel like Jojo Rabbit is so far removed from World War II as an actual real event that it can't take any of it seriously and comes across as nothing but farcical comedy, whereas this film sort of depends on you taking the war and Germany seriously for it to be funny in the first place. And I know I've heard quite a few people who were offended by Jojo Rabbit for one reason or another. So I have to respect that that opinion is out there and held by a lot of people. But I do appreciate the arc that it builds with the main character going from this uh, totally brainwashed, idealistic young kid who just believes in the cause and the disillusionment and the breaking of that spell that um, brings him to become a better person. I mean, it's a coming of age story at the end of the day. Uh, learning to grow up and realize that the world is bigger than what you were taught by a party or an ideology. And I don't know, it's a relatable sort of feeling that I myself might have had. And I mean, it is a fantasy. It is a cartoon. It looks like a Wes Anderson version of World War II. So I never really saw it as a real thing. And especially at the end. Oh, my God, the end is quite silly. But America didn't liberate Berlin. Soviet Union did. <laughs> oh, my God. I still liked it. It's got its flaws, but I I do like Jojo Rabbit. You know, it was nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> I would be curious to know what your opinions are of this film if you revisit it in a year or so. Yes. Yeah. I also think if you think about this film as not taking place during World War II, like it's it's fine. Yeah. In some radical alternate reality version of the world where Nazi Germany won the war, this film would be totally insensitive and just like so off the mark and missing the point and everything. But it's almost like we can look back with a sigh of relief and it's OK. We can we can laugh at this, you know? Yes. Like I said, I think that perspective is it's very forward thinking. It's also sort of a way of legitimizing why there's a fear of Germany because we see how powerful they are and we see the destruction they're capable of causing. But then simultaneously sort of giving a message of hope to people watching the film, reminding them they are just humans and we can win. There is hope. And that's sort of Mel Brooks's whole thing with the Nazis and the producers, right? Is that you poke fun at their 
outfits and they're parading around and everything. And you sort of take the power away from them in that way. Yes. And there actually was a remake of this film made that starred Mel Brooks. So I do think that this is a subject that you can poke fun at that is, you know, an acceptable target, of course. And just because you are making jokes about concentration camps doesn't necessarily a bad thing on on you as a filmmaker or writer or anything like that. And, you know, I mean, she is told she isn't allowed to wear that dress. And even the (laughs) other members of the troupe are offended by it. But that's what makes the whole thing so damn funny to me is that it's showing just how ignorant they all are of the true horrors at this point. Even the fact that they make a reference to people not taking the war seriously and then they are all thrown into the war and they are forced to realize how realistic it is. That's them acknowledging stuff is going on there that we don't know about. And it's much worse than anything we could imagine. Do you know what I mean by that? Absolutely. And I will point at the great dictator because Charlie Chaplin is sent to a concentration camp in that film. And it's almost just like a camp. Yes. And again, they didn't know the true horror at the time, but I I feel like that might make too light of the situation. I mean, my, my gosh, this tightrope (laughs) of making fun of Nazis and still being like sensitive to the true horrors is uh, quite the tightrope. You know, I think if this had been directed by, I don't know, um, Cecil B. DeMille or something, I don't think it would be able to stick around as much. Ernst Lubitsch gets to tell this story, right? Because he's a German Jew. And that's one of the coolest perspectives of the whole thing, is that he's just already making these sharp critiques of his own culture that he came from. It's sort of, in a way, is one of the reasons why the film has endured, I think. Yeah. Was he making films in Germany, like during the Nazis' rise to power? No, 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 no. He came to Hollywood in 1922. Oh, okay. He His German uh, film work when he was super young was from 1913 to 1920, 21. Okay, super young, yeah. Now, how much do you know about Ernst Lubitsch? I mean, not as far as his history goes, but just of his reputation. Um, Nothing. I know nothing about uh, I do think it's a little unfortunate that for some reason in modern film discussion, he isn't brought up as the talent that he truly was because he really sort of changed the face of movie making and is truly one of the all time great directors. When he started making silent films in Hollywood, uh, he was contracted by Mary Pickford and he had been making historical dramas and sort of costume dramas in Germany. And then he started making comedies in the twenties during the silent era. He would also, he would make comedy adaptations of plays, very wordy plays. And in place of inner titles, he would use the image as a way of, portraying the dialogue and portraying the characters scenarios and there are some people who say that his films sometimes usurped their play um, counterparts simply because they were able to achieve so much more with imagery Um, lady windermere's fan is a very famous example it's based on an oscar wilde play and 
that entire film, all of its moments of confusion, of misunderstanding and misdirection, they all are done through clever imagery. We see a woman look at another woman across the way, and that woman is holding a man's hand. And just because of what has been set up visually earlier, we are to think that that man is this woman's husband, and she gets jealous, and we see her look jealous and storm off. Then the camera flips to the other side, and we see it's another man who this woman has every right to be courting. And so this entire situation, which is set up with dialogue on the stage, is done entirely visually in the film. And he was sort of a genius in that way. He was a very good visual storyteller in this film as well, obviously. There's so many subtle callbacks and subtle setups that are all done visually. And you might not notice it, but your brain does. And it's so fascinating watching this film. The sequence where the doctor is talking to our main actor and he's pretending to be Colonel Earhart. And then the way that sequence is reflected, not just with the costumes and the dialogue, but with the visual cinematography of then our main character being in disguise as the doctor talking to the real Colonel Earhart, the way that that's able to translate to the audience everything they need to know about those characters and then makes a hilarious joke out of it between the character distinctions is visual poetry. It's beautiful. There's so many great setup and payoff jokes throughout this film. Yeah, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff. Also, in the doctor's big final scene right before he's killed, I mean, he is the the main threat of the film, and the way that they do it by having them search through the theater, and then the spotlight is used as a searchlight, and the way it's scanning through the audience is like it's an actual searchlight. So clever, and then of course mm-hmm. it shoots up. And he's on the stage in the middle of the curtain and is caught in a moment and actually takes a pose on the stage. It is such a striking image. And then he runs off to the side of the curtain and the spotlight follows him. So good. So well done. Hearing that gunshot and then the curtains slowly come up. You see the yes. two you know, <laughs> pairs of legs there and you're wondering, oh, my God, who got shot? They're both standing still. What's going on? It's like this still life that's being revealed right by the curtains and uh and then you see it and you see uh their pose i mean it's it's really really masterfully done yeah yes that stage tableau it's like an actual stage tableau that you would reveal at the beginning of the second act and um and again you know it's something that you might not even realize is happening when you're watching the film because you're sort of just invested in the story but your brain really is making these connections of oh this whole thing is sort of a stage play and this one moment of seriousness is the most dramatic of all because it's the one getting the big curtain reveal and mm-hmm. it's sort of the beginning of the final act of the film so so genius well yeah when this film came out he was already doing uh sound films and had already released some of his most famous ones including design for living and Ninochka, which I don't remember if we mentioned that in the list of 1939 great films, but definitely deserves to be mentioned. Hmm. It's also a war comedy espionage. He was definitely there visually and at this point had really gotten a grip on audio as well. And I really feel like To Be or Not To Be is a culmination of years of experience and time and effort 
that go into one big project and it just is a full success. Was this based on anything? No, it is not an adaptation of a play, but it is an adaptation of a Hungarian story, which is also interesting because a lot of his films were based on Hungarian plays, German plays, French plays. Um, He loved the Eastern European style of writing and loved adapting it. I, I do know that he was very passionate about telling it and very passionate about Jack Benny playing the lead role. When they were writing the script, he was writing that character as if it was Jack Benny playing it the entire time. And I think it does show. I think that he really fits the character like a glove in a very specific way, especially when he has to start putting on all the different hats and doing all the different impersonations. It's so silly and ridiculous. I loved his impersonation of the evil Nazi professor. He looks so much like him. I mean, the costume is great. The hair and makeup is great. Yes. But then it's him just like, yeah, all of his expressions and everything making the guy look like an idiot. Yes. The mannerisms that he pulls off and the way he's sitting even. Yeah. That joke kills me because we are watching him having studied the doctor in movement during that scene where he's pretending to be a colonel who he has no idea how he acts and is sort of hoping that the doctor doesn't either for the plan to work only for him to have a successful impersonation of the doctor in front of the colonel and realize that he did a good impression of the colonel (laughs) completely accidentally. What's the Um, nickname that they keep repeating over and over again? So they call me Concentration Camp Fernart. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, when he repeats it while laughing, and uh, Joseph Tura's face is just in complete shock because he can't believe he got it right. Um, is really great. Spoilers for the end of the film, but I really love it when fake Hitler walks in on the Gestapo guy trying to seduce her. And the Gestapo guy just, uh, you know, you can see his whole life flash before his eyes as he thinks <laughs> yeah. that he's uh, <laughs> making the moves on Hitler's mistress. <laughs> I also love fake Hitler going to the back of the plane and just telling them to jump. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. just laughs> jump out of the plane. <laughs> that joke and um what is it? Um what he's doing to Shakespeare is what we're doing to Poland. <laughs> oh god. Those both of those jokes are like almost too dark. Just almost. They're just riding the line ever so slightly. Uh, that reminds me of the review that I happened to find from the New York Times. Did you read it? I did. <laughs> um, As I said, when I sent it to you, uh, purposefully chosen for its ire. Yeah. And I mean, it did not have a very solid reputation when it first came out. And now, all these years later, it truly is seen as his masterpiece, mm-hmm. which is very interesting because he didn't really get to live to see that. To say it is callous. And Macabre is understating the case. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps there are plenty of persons who can overlook the locale, who can still laugh at Nazi generals with Popeyes and bungle some wits. But apparently this critic was not one of them. You know, when I was reading this review, I was that was when the thought of Jojo Rabbit really came to my head because I thought, 
oh no, this is pretty much my criticisms of Jojo Rabbit. And it makes me feel like in 30 years, I'm going to say, oh, it's great. I was wrong. <laughs> it's always okay to admit you're Possibly. wrong. It's okay for things to change. Absolutely. Oh, my opinions on films have changed both positively and negatively so many times over the years. Yes. Sometimes a movie just hits you at the right time and yes. you just love it. And then you watch it a few years later and you think, what was I on? Why did I love this so much? <laughs> and then sometimes, you know, you see a film and you absolutely hate it. I would be down to revisit this again. I think if I watch it with more people, it's tough watching comedies by yourself. True. But yes, I, if I was in a crowd of people and I felt, you know, compelled to laugh with my friends and everything, I think I would enjoy this film a little bit more. Um, but it was sort of more of an intellectual exercise watching it than the director probably intended. I've only watched it with people. And even though this film lost me at times, it did keep bringing me back. There were scenes where I was like, oh, wait, here it is. This is funny. <laughs> even though reviews at the time for this movie were pretty bad and the reputation for the movie was negative out the gate carol lombard who she she had a very significant career in screwball comedies and was seen as sort of the queen of screwball comedies at this time in her career she unfortunately passed away Right before this film came out, she was at a war bond rally. I think she was in Indiana. Okay. And her and her mother got onto a plane to go back to California. It was a really foggy night sky. And the plane crashed into the side of a mountain and everybody on board died. Damn. And it was a huge tragedy. So... What's interesting, Arthur, is that as much as you might want to be in the mentality of somebody from that time period... I bet you did not have the added layer of the reason you were going to see this film is because your favorite comedic actress had just died two months ago. No, I didn't factor that in. But imagine that, you know, so that I really think that's another reason why the film has sort of a bad reputation is because on top of it, some pretty dark material and making jokes in some very risky subjects it also is the final project of this sort of beloved actress at the time. And I think people really want a proper send off. And to be clear, I think this is an incredible send off. I think this is one of her best performances and I love her in this film. And it's interesting because in a way that tragedy, I think is one of the reasons this film did end up getting eventually re-evaluated and enjoyed because even at the time critics were very sensitive to that aspect of it mm -hmm. and carol lombard got pretty much unanimously positive reviews and her performance getting those incredible reviews even though the film itself was more or less lambasted i think caused people to want to revisit it later and then realize oh this whole movie is great she's great as well but the whole movie is great i do hope in general that ernst lubitsch doesn't get lost i feel like i haven't 
I haven't given this little speech in a while of, I hope this director doesn't get lost in the lexicon, but I do. I mean, I love Ernst Lubitsch, and he really changed the way comedies were made and perceived. I I hope that, you know, his legacy is remembered, truly. Well, cool. Final ratings. (laughs) I give this two big buckets of popcorn. (laughs) <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be fully ebert and roper by the end we're gonna we're gonna discuss babe pig in the city at ridiculous length <laughs> what did we say it was well babe was the citizen kane of talking animal films <laughs> <laughs> and then you said babe pig in the city was something i'm sure i said something like the andre rublev or something <laughs> all right let's see what are we doing next week in our world war ii lineup we got a french film les corbeaux translated into english as the raven uh this was a film made in france when the country was under nazi occupation we were looking for a german film made during this time but it's crazy i don't think the nazis really liked the arts yeah i mean I've seen Hitler's paintings. I can understand why art wasn't a number one priority. (laughs) (laughs) There's the Titanic, not to be confused with the other one. Oh my gosh, this poster is incredible. Yeah, 1943, Titanic is a German film. Uh, Very, not great ratings. No, I mean, the Nazi um, war machine and prioritized propaganda. uh, there's, There's just no great cinematic films coming out of the country at this time although i would be interested in watching someone's subversion from within i don't think the nazis really stood for that no i don't think that would have been able to come out and even if it was made i don't think it would exist today right i was curious to check out some of kurosawa's films made during world war ii I read his autobiography, and he talks pretty extensively about his experience making films under the Imperial Japanese like censorship board during World War II. And that's such an interesting look inside of, you know, a film industry that is being controlled by a fascist totalitarian state. I, that was that was cool. And we were originally going to do One Wonderful Sunday for 47, right? Um, yes, I was interested in watching that, but uh, we'll get to Kurosawa eventually. Okay, we have to end this. <laughs> <laughs> I gave you three episodes in a row where it is almost nothing but me talking. <laughs> Between the movies, the researching, and the editing, producing a podcast like this takes some time. So thank you for subscribing and going on this little journey through film and world history with us. The best way to give back and help the show is to leave a five-star review and a rating with some of your thoughts. This is actually super helpful because it shows Apple Podcasts that people are listening and recommending the show, so their algorithms will recommend it to more and more people. So thank you for leaving reviews. We really appreciate it. And for recommending our show to other film lovers that you know. And lastly, a big thanks to Nathan Royal for the show's music. You can find more of his work by checking out Hot House West. And we will have a new episode out next week. 